If you're happy with the same old ways of dating, if you enjoy sucking at communication, and you have no desire to improve your romantic life, then our podcast might not be for you. But if you want some out-of-the-box ideas to deepen your current relationships, broaden your sexual horizons, develop a better understanding of yourself, or learn more about non-monogamy, then you've come to the right place. I'm Jace. I'm Emily. And I'm Dedeker. And this is the Multi-Amory Podcast. On this episode of the Multi-Amory Podcast, we are speaking with Carrie Jenkins, philosopher and author of the new book, What Love Is and What It Could Be. We had a great conversation about the nature of love, including non-monogamous love, of course. She is a poly person herself. Um, and we talked about its biological nature, as well as its social nature, and some of her predictions for the future. Uh, it's an awesome conversation. Yeah, excellent, excellent, and yeah. wonderful read also. Yeah, definitely recommend checking out the book. Uh, there'll be information at the end of the podcast and in our notes where you can get the book and where you can learn more about Carrie. All right, with that, let's get to it. So we have Carrie Jenkins here, author of the book, What Love Is and What It Could Be. Thank you so much for joining us on the show, Carrie. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. So um, rather than us just like reading your bio off and your list of accomplishments, um, do you mind just letting our listeners know a little bit about yourself, about what it is that you do? For sure. Yeah. So, um, so I'm a professor of philosophy at the University of British Columbia, um, and I have the Canada Research Chair um, in philosophy at that university. And I'm running a project there, which is a multi-year um, interdisciplinary project on the nature of love, um, the metaphysics of romantic love. So I'm looking into just what this thing is, um, questions like how natural it is, how much of it is um, invented versus discovered, um, whether it's real at all, and questions like that. And so um, so the book that I've just written, What Love Is and What It Could Be, has come out of, out of that project at the University of British Columbia. So I have a question, and this is this isn't really even about the main topic at hand, but it's about the the term metaphysics that you used. Oh, yeah. You know, in in, <laughs> in the book, you give a little bit of a definition about it, and it's an interesting one because um, I find that a lot of people in the non monogamy community also tend to be involved with stuff that's a little bit we we call it you know like hippie or a little woo 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 woo, and. People in that, like in the New Thought movement and stuff like that, use the term metaphysics as well. And I think they're meaning something different than what you are. That's right. Yeah. So, um, metaphysics has, um, has many different meanings. Um, the way I'm using it is the way that an academic um, philosopher uses it. So it's within the discipline of philosophy. It's a sub-discipline that is particularly concerned with um, reality with the, um, you know the nature of, of the world and the universe around us, as opposed to say like questions of ethics or mm -hmm. questions about how we know about the world, which would be epistemology. So mm -hmm. metaphysics is really kind of those direct questions about what is real and what isn't. Mm -hmm. And so it's not like that usage is obviously not completely disconnected from other ways that people use the term metaphysics, which right. also tend to be interested in that question about like what's real and what isn't. Mm -hmm. um, but certainly it has um, it has different kind of 
annotations when you go into most bookstores and look at the metaphysics section you're probably right. not looking yeah. at it what tends I'm to be like about. the secret and these sort of <laughs> magical right. sort Esoteric. of stuff yeah yeah yeah, definitely. yeah that's right it doesn't really mean that in um in the um in the academic uh, mm. context right <laughs> So for your book that just came out, um, for all the lay people, like non-philosopher people who are listening out there, essentially it boils down to this really excellent and very thorough exploration of uh, trying to figure out what romantic love really is. Um, and so, Carrie, you know, why is that such a tricky question for us to tackle? Yeah, great question. Um, so, I mean, there are lots of things getting in the way of understanding this, I think. Um, so there's this bundle of ideas, ideologies that I've called the romantic mystique. Um, and I'm using that label very deliberately to call back to the feminine mystique, this idea that Betty Friedan was developing as a sort of um, core principle of second wave feminism, um, that women or femininity have been bundled as, as mysterious and, and weird and incomprehensible, but very natural and like spiritual and mystical, maybe, um, and then sort of put on a pedestal. Um, in that, with that bundle of ideas and ideologies floating around what it is to be a woman. And the thought then is you can't really question that or challenge that. And if you're, if you want to live a, a fulfilling life as a woman, you just accept your role as a maternal caregiver and nurturer because that is what is bundled into these natural ideas. Um, so that's the feminine mystique. And I want to say there is this other phenomenon, the romantic mystique where we're attaching a very, very similar bundle of ideas and ideologies to romantic love. So, for example, this idea that it's incomprehensible, it's mysterious and weird, um, you can never really understand it, but it's wonderful and beautiful and magical and natural, and so you, should, you can put it on this little pedestal, you should never critique it, you should never challenge it, and if you want to live a fulfilling life, you should just let it happen as the way it is, and then, you know, everything will just, will just work out. And so, like the feminine mystique this romantic mystique is this really disempowering ideology um, it's promoting acquiescence it's promoting deliberate ignorance of mm. um, of what I think is actually really really powerful really influential potentially really dangerous potentially deadly phenomenon right which is romantic love mm. um, so that we've got this this combination of things going on where on the one hand lots of people are literally letting their lives be determined by romantic love. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And on the other hand, everyone's saying, well, don't overthink that. Um, you, know, you just want to let that happen, right? You can't really understand it, so that's fine. Um, and I'm saying, no, that's not fine. <laughs> if it's that important, we need to do the best we can to understand it. And of course, we can never fully understand it. We're not going to answer the question perfectly, but we've got to try. Right. Yeah. So that actually leads me perfectly to one of our later questions, which is the fact that, um, and you mentioned this in the book, that when you bring up analyzing romantic love or using any kind of uh, analytical or logical tool with love, that people sometimes freak out a little bit. You know, they kind of think like, oh, well, that's going to that's gonna make it less romantic. That's going to take away the magic. That's going to make it inorganic. And we've definitely experienced in our own lives, um, you know, trying to use different tools and relationships or communication tools of people being like, oh, that's so robotic. Like, why would you do it that way? And we've always felt on the podcast that it actually can enhance things, you know, rather than make them more robotic. But mm -hmm. I want to know what's your response to that? Because I feel like a lot of people would respond to that this book in that way of like, why do you want to pick apart romantic love? Like, like, isn't that going to destroy all of our relationships? 
Yeah, good. So, I mean, um, it didn't destroy mine. So, you know, that's the first <laughs> thing to, to put on the table. It didn't destroy either of my um, like long-term um, loving relationships. In fact, I, I feel that it's made them stronger and healthier to be mm. more thoughtful and to be more aware. Um, the other thing to say about this is some, sometimes there's perceived to be a kind of um, dualism or dichotomy between emotion and reason, this idea that you're either thinking or you're feeling, mm. um, and they're going to somehow be pulling you apart. Um, and what I found is that with practice and over time, they, they're pulling me together. Um, and that, I think, is really valuable. So I'm not proposing to replace feeling through one's romantic relationships with thinking instead i'm proposing to try to bring you know in a really healthy mind i'm thinking can't we bring those two together mm. um so that they're working in harmony and they're pulling in the same direction um rather than trying to shut part of that down rather than trying to shut one's critical reasoning self down um at the very moments when you might need it the most right yeah. um when perhaps yeah. things well, that's, could that's, be dangerous i, I wanted you. to i wanted to go into that a little bit because an example that i thought was really powerful in your book is when you're talking about how if we don't question what love is and we're just kind of taking this sort of amalgamation of little clues we get from the movies we watch and the books we read and all of that, that we can end up not being able to tell the difference between abuse mm -hmm. and love because yeah. a lot of those traits are misrepresented or, you know, mm -hmm. that, that that's why when you were mentioning earlier that it can be dangerous or even deadly, I'm like, yeah, right. we've and we've all seen this happen with ourselves and with people that we care about. Uh, right. Uh, and this is that. an idea that I'm taking straight out of um, Bell Hooks, who's mm. uh, one of the big influences on, on my work. Um, mm. so she's been, you know, a long time um, uh, critic and feminist writer. Um, and she's and she's very interested in love um, and the nature of love. Um, I don't agree like wholly with all of her views, but there is uh, that strand in particular was really inspiring to me in in wanting to come to clarity as as she puts it about what love is precisely mm. because the unclarity is allowing a lot of dangerous and dark things to fly under the banner of love, and that's such a powerful and positive banner that it's actually you know it's a very dangerous thing to let something that's actually destructive, something that's actually abusive fly anywhere near the word love right yeah. so phrases like you know too much love as used to excuse abusive behavior um i think those just need to set our alarm bells ringing yeah. immediately and very loudly well what, what it makes me think of is not necessarily abuse but i think of the reactions that we often get when we on the podcast talk about nre about new relationship energy oh yeah you know mm -hmm. about that you know, that rush of energy that you get when all the chemicals in your brain are firing when you first start to fall in love with someone. Um, and I feel like understanding that NRE is a thing uh, makes it better. Like the fact that I can be like, okay, now I can soak into this and I can enjoy it. But also mm -hmm. not make any major but not life make, decisions. But not make a decision right to move now. across the country, you know. But so right. many people don't, you know. So many people right. do totally fall into that. Mm -hmm. um, Yes, I mean, and I've had, like, I've even had partners who are like, why would you call it NRE? Like, that's just so inorganic and, like, that's so unromantic. <laughs> but it's, yeah, I feel very much the same that, no, like, I feel like it being able to bring in the thinking mind enhances it yeah. and makes it so that you can enjoy it without, like, just being, like, totally drunk, I suppose. Mm -hmm. I, it, there were parts when in reading the book that reminded me a little bit of... Um, 
of the show Cosmos of Neil deGrasse Tyson, where he talks a lot about, you know, critics of scientific exploration of the universe say like, oh, you're taking the magic out of it. You're taking the God out of it, whatever. And, and his argument is always like, don't you see how much more incredible this is when we understand it? And right, I, I kind of right. felt a little bit of a similarity in your book in terms of exploring love and looking at the different studies that are done about it and the writers over the years who've talked yeah, about like, it. Absolutely. I mean, my my sense is that understanding things better in no way takes out the magic or the wonder. You know, it's the wonder that prompts me to understand and that gets me down these rabbit holes of, mm-hmm. of just thinking, what on earth is going on here that's so complicated and, and, and beautiful and brilliant? And that's why I'm going to investigate it, right? Mm-hmm. So it's, I don't see those things as being intention at all. Mm-hmm. I wanted to come back to actually one of the things that you said about... Um, the, the, the word unromantic, like the idea that doing this kind of um, critical thinking could be unromantic. Um, and I think there might actually be something to that, but not something that we want to be too worried about doing. So um, here's my thought. So uh, sometimes when we when we use the word romantic, we're using it to pick out a particular um, kind of story that we have singled out as the romantic story, and it's basically, you know, just the plot of every rom-com ever. Mm-hmm. Um, that story we think of as romantic, and the, the label then gets used to kind of um, distinguish it from every other kind of story, every other kind of relationship that could, that could happen. Um, and so sometimes when we say unromantic, what we're doing is we're... we're um, we're investing in that hierarchy that makes some love stories mm-hmm. the romantic ones and therefore the best ones. Right. Um, and so unromantic, in some ways, it might even be worth trying to reclaim a little bit of that <laughs> and say, sure, it's not your, it's not your rom-com stereotype. Mm-hmm. Um, that does not mean we've done something wrong here. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, yeah. you know, I mean, this is, this is kind of getting me a little bit ahead of ourselves in where I go in, in the book. But mm-hmm. part of what I end up saying in, in this book is I'm not even sure whether my love does count as romantic. Mm-hmm. And I'm not sure if I'm worried about that because yeah. that might not be what I'm after in the in the long term. Well, that actually that's a that's a good pivot point because um I mean, part of the reason why we invited you on the show is because you yourself have been um involved in non-monogamous relationships for quite a while. Um and I would want to know like why is this question and why is this exploration relevant to people who are non-monogamous or polyamorous? Right. So, I mean, this is this was part of um, the motivation behind um, getting into this question. Um, it was it was kind of a really interesting um, smushing together of my professional interests and my personal life. Um, so I, I had been working in metaphysics for a long time and thinking about the nature of reality and what's real and what's out there and what's natural and what does it even mean to say that something's natural and all that sort of stuff. Um, but I haven't been a- applying those questions to, to love specifically um, until... Um, I started uh, living in openly polyamorous relationships and noticing that, you know, how I was experiencing love was definitely non-standard, was not normative around in the, the place around me. So um, and one of the things that would happen that was symptomatic of that would be that um, people would say, oh, it's not, that's not really love. You're not really in love if you feel it with two people because, you know, because they're thinking of the single romantic story that's definitely monogamous and permanent and, you know, all of those other things. Um, and so for me, part of the part of the process of the book, which um, is still represented as, you know, as you read through the book, you can kind of see me struggling through these these questions. Part of the process is asking, well, if I do love two people, 
does that mean it's not romantic love? Is there something different? Is there a different category that that would have to fall into? Um, and I end up, um, you know, developing my, my own theory of what romantic love is that gives a kind of yes and maybe answer. Um, and so, I mean, possibly I should explain a bit more about what that theory is before I explain <laughs> why it get, delivers that answer. Mm-hmm. Um, but one of the things I end up saying is that, you know, e- even if the answer was, was no or maybe, um, that wouldn't necessarily mean I was doing something wrong. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, I I feel like we could we could easily just sort of like go through your whole book and all of the uh, you know all of the different arguments made along the way and different explorations there. Um, but but I think that this point, in terms of stuff that we've talked about on this podcast, the point that 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 really resonated with some stuff we've been on is that idea of does my relationship count as romantic love? And maybe it doesn't matter if it does or not. Um, Mm -hmm. And kind of asking these questions of why do we feel the need to make this separate category for romantic love Mm -hmm. versus having love, having sexual attraction, having, you know, cohabitation, having commitment, having all these different pieces. And you described it in your book at one point as a la carte. Like the idea that you're (laughs) picking which pieces is going to go into this relationship. Um, And I love that because I've been looking for a good way to describe that. And the the metaphor of an a la carte menu is awesome. Mm -hmm. Um, Thank you. Yeah, I like this idea. And the idea that you can go back to the buffet and, uh, you know, you can get something else that you didn't get the first time. You can swap things out if it's Mm -hmm. not working for you. You know, you don't have to just you don't have to go just once and then you keep whatever's on your plate. Mm -hmm. Right. That just because a relationship's romantic doesn't mean it has to have all of these Mm -hmm. pieces. Mm hmm. Uh, so something that I wanted to to ask about. So um, early in the book, you talk about sort of the biological um, studies that have been done about the biology of love. And you talk specifically about um, Dr. Helen Fisher a fair mm-hmm. amount. And I was familiar with some of her work because of her TED Talks and, you know, other people writing about it and all that. Dan um, Savage bashing her. <laughs> well, that too. <laughs> um but so in it, you know, she she did her study of college students who reported that they've recently fallen deeply in love and scanning their brains and seeing, oh, there's this, you know, dopamine and these sort of reward centers of their brain are being triggered. And the the thing that struck me about it, because, you know, you mentioned that some of her conclusions may be affected by her own bias about how she thinks romantic love should be in terms of being monogamous or that it always follows the same trajectory. Um, But I was actually thinking that it seems like even the setup of the experiment itself is based in that bias, because in this situation, I would say it's fairly safe to assume that all of these people, all of these college students she was scanning, were in love with someone who they were probably having sex with or really wanted to. And I, it kind of made me ask this question of, like, how do we know that there's anything different between people saying they're in love, between people being incredibly sexually attracted to each other? And that why do we feel this need to make those one thing? To say, like, oh, well, if you're in love and there's this sexual attraction, then you're going to have these brain reactions. And it just kind of struck me as, like, what about asexual people? What if you scanned a group of 100 asexual people who've just fallen in love? Would that scan look different? And therefore, you know, the same question of like, what's love then? Right. And and so and 
Uh, so I'm so glad you raised this because I actually have um, I don't write about this so much in the book because it kind of gets into the specifics of scientific methodology. Um, but I have another paper where I it, maybe this is an academic you know journal article um, mm-hmm. where I talk about the the scientific research out of various disciplines um, that's being done on love and the way that those studies are conducted. There's there's a lot of methodological reasons to worry quite deeply about what it is that they're showing us. Um, and, and the point that you're making is exactly, I think, spot on, that because of the ways that the people are even being selected into the study in the first place, what they're most likely to show us is what normative love looks like, right? right? What we expect out of a romantic love story. I mean, even even looking at um, you know um, the, this sort of college age uh, group is going to be quite specific in ways that you know if you were to look at a bunch of forty and fifty year olds, you might well expect to see which, something. A which is different. actually, I found uh, when I was in psychology classes in college, realizing how big a problem that is in a lot of psychological research out there mm-hmm. is that most of it's done on college, <laughs> college students, students right? which yeah. is a very specific group very of specific a socioeconomic group, group as well as an yep. age group mm-hmm. like there's yep. a lot of oh, yeah. yeah but it's just like the <laughs> and, easiest and right are, that's right because your students you are just free. right there <laughs> they're free yeah they're, and they're going to be you know they can be persuaded with with, with extra credit, credit yeah to come and take the but of course you know that's a massive methodological problem and so mm-hmm. i mean that's one thing and then you know another thing is that um almost always the way that you are going to get your test group together is you're going to deliver some sort of questionnaire so that, so that people can report on um, whether basically whether they're in love right now or not. Because how else are you going to know who is in your control group and who is in your test group? You just have to kind of ask them. And so that means you're relying on test questionnaires that are supposed to measure the symptoms of being in love. And I'm doing, people who are listening to this can't see, but I'm doing scare quotes with my fingers right now, the symptoms of being in love. But of course, who's designing that list of symptoms? It's actually been, there's a standard model test um, that's been designed by like some folks in the 80s um, for what the symptoms of being in love are like. Um, and you know that's obviously um, in many ways potentially um, a quite different phenomenon from love in 2017. Mm-hmm. Um, not not least, I think the the possibility of of um, the, the very different ways that love is mediated now, especially in early stages by technology and by different forms of communication mm-hmm. that are being considered in um, you know a nineteen uh, something that was designed in the nineteen eighties. Yeah. But the problem with this is that once a, a model has become the standard. Uh, way of of testing something once you've got a standard measure for how much in love somebody is then if you want your new study to be comparable to the older studies you have to use the same measure so that's why these things that get very sticky Um, and actually this is a big big methodological problem for for the science of love so it's kind of like these same benchmarks keep getting used when maybe the benchmark itself is not the best but what if the phenomenon has changed or there were problems with it originally i mean so one issue that i have with the with the standard measure that's used at the moment it's called the passionate love scale, um, is that it just assumes that love is monogamous by, by definition. So mm-hmm. it's, it says things like, I would rather be with so-and-so than with anybody else. Um, as a marker, And if you answer no to that question, you go down the scale of how in love you are. And I'm mm-hmm. like, so that's going to put me straight down the scale of how in love I am just because I'm not a monogamous person. Yeah, that's, yeah. actually, that's funny because we, we, <laughs> we did an episode on attachment theory uh, mm-hmm. quite a while ago. And I know there's similar things with attachment theory of where... Um, people, if people who answer like that they're jealous when they think about their partner being with someone else, that that's actually a sign of, of like secure attachment. Um, right. 
which is like so interesting very questionable right yeah 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 whose idea of attachment is that yeah and that's that's the the question right whose idea of love is really being examined by these studies and the answer is the the people who've designed the studies it's their idea of love and and so you know when we talk about someone like say dr fisher being biased um, there's a sense in which everybody is, right? Because nobody right. can come to these investigations without baggage and without assumptions. And you can't start without assumptions. You need them. Um, but the thing you then have to do is be aware of what yours, is, what your baggage is, what your assumptions are. Um, and the problem with um, some of these scientific studies is they're presenting as objective fact things that actually just encode somebody's idea about what romantic love is and so they're concealing the relevance of of those subjective takes on love um, and presenting it as as the objective truth and that's where i have a methodological problem you know if you were to say hey look this is a definition of love you could use if you use that then this is the results you get great but if you then right. um, present that <laughs> yeah. result as, and this is what love is, to core, for everybody, always mm-hmm. and forever, mm-hmm. um, then I think you've, you've overstepped. I mean, the scientific method tells you not to do that, right? Yeah. You're overgeneralizing. Yeah. I want to bring up uh, something that you also explore in the book. It's this idea that historically people will label a relationship as being purely sexual as a way to devalue it. So, mm-hmm. like, we saw this with interracial relationships. We've seen it with mm-hmm. same-sex relationships. And mm-hmm. we definitely see it with non-monogamous relationships. That it's, Very much. That it's, you know, no, that's not real love. It's just sexual. Of right. course, mm-hmm. also putting, you know, love and sex on opposite ends of the scale. Um, mm-hmm. And what we've seen is, obviously, I think that we what we saw in the gay rights movement was that big push towards, no, 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 it's love. Like, it's love. Mm-hmm. It's hashtag love wins. You know, it's we're just like you. We want to get married and have babies just like you. Um, Mm -hmm. And I see that in the polyamory movement of being like, no, 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 it's not all about sex. It's about love. It's about love. It's about love. You know, we also want to do child rearing and and all these normal things. But what we kind of see is it's almost like the pendulum swings so far in the opposite direction that there's actually like a lot of sex negativity in the poly community as well. Um, that it, bec- it becomes so far that it's like, no, 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 we're so not like the weirdos. Like, we actually think casual sex is a horrible thing, you know? Um, yep. <laughs> oh, and, yeah. <laughs> and, <laughs> yeah, it is this challenging thing because it is, you know, like when we first started this podcast, uh, you know, my best friend back in Seattle was like, I just don't understand why you need to talk about what happens in the bedroom on a podcast. <laughs> and it, right? <laughs> it was that thing of like, but it's We're not about that, talk about that right like <laughs> and and so you know in our podcast we we intentionally mm-hmm. don't talk a ton about sex on this podcast like we mm-hmm. mentioned that sex happens and talk about sort of the realities of it but you know we don't do a lot of episodes just exploring sexuality mm-hmm. and part of that is because we did want to make it clear that monogamous people could be kinky and poly mm-hmm. people could be kinky but they don't have to go one with the other necessarily mm-hmm. But there is this risk of ending up fighting that fight too hard and ending up sex negative, or at least coming across so that right. way. This is so yeah. right. And um, so I mean, you're actually, you're kind of uh, giving me the perfect opportunity to talk about other things I've also written. Um, but I, wrote, <laughs> yeah. I wrote a piece for um, for the establishment, which is a you know, really um, great media, new media source that I, that I love. Um, and and um, I argue in it that, yes, it's true, polyamory is not all about sex and media representation um, of it as a sort of hypersexualized phenomenon is a problem um, because it is trading in the existing sex negativity for, you know, anti 
um, poly sentiment. Right. Um, but what I go on to say at the end of that is that the, the way to fight back about that needs to be done on two fronts because you don't just like step away from the bomb and then push somebody else under it, right? Mm-hmm. What you do, you have to defuse the weapon at the same time as, you know, saving yourself from whatever damage is being done by it. So it is... Um, you know, it is inaccurate to say that poly is all being poly is all about sex. So, of course, you know, we say that um, at the same time, we don't want to say that without adding. Also, there's nothing wrong with things that are all about <laughs> yeah. sex, right? Because sex is fine. You know, unless there's something being done that's actually non-consensual or that's harmful, there mm. is nothing wrong with purely sexual relationships. It's just that that isn't what I was talking about when I was talking about being in love with somebody, which is a different thing. So, um, so it's kind of like, you know... Um, it's it's sort of like somehow so society has set aside the like shameful, dirty, nasty corner for the people who are all just about the sex and nothing else. Um, and so you know everyone's trying to sort of run, run, run out of the out of the dirty, nasty corner. Um, and so uh, and, and I totally get that. I understand like why that's important. Um, but the other thing that's important is to like shine lights back into the into the corner and say actually there's nothing in there that's scary. Like that, <laughs> that corner is actually fine too, and everyone back there is also fine. Um, and you know can we please just stop putting people in the corner but I guess what we've seen is that it's an easier battle to win pushing the we're all about love banner than to push the no look in the sex corner and you'll see that everything's fine <laughs> like much that, easier yeah yeah much easier but but it doesn't I mean it doesn't make it right <laughs> yeah <laughs> you know? exactly um, exactly and it's it's kind of similar to you know um uh, the ways in which the norms of monogamy have actually been reinforced by the move towards like greater inclusion of same-sex love, as long as it is monogamous and looks as much as possible like traditional. Yeah. Yeah. As and long again, as we're not talking the about the bathhouse or marriage. anything like that. Yeah. Exactly, right? As, as long as we're not talking about letting people have two partners, then we're cool with it. As long as you look as much like, quotes us, as or normal as possible, then we're cool with it. And that's actually been... Um, you know, one of the, the ways in which um, being a, a poly woman, and especially a, a queer poly woman, um, which I, is how I identify, has become like harder and harder, um, even as things have generally gotten better um, for queer people in general um, in the in the society around me. Um, and in fact, the the intersection becomes really awkward because then being a queer poly person, you're kind of at one of the phrases that I've seen bandied about is like ruining gay marriage for everybody, mm. which is you know a piece of abuse that was actually sent to um, to a, a queer triad. Um, yes, as, well, as a, you know, just, yeah. I forget who it was, but there was uh, someone, and I I don't remember if this was more in the realm of philosophy or more about politics, but was talking about this, this, you know, basically the in-group, out-group phenomenon, but basically that, you know, originally we have heterosexual monogamous people as the in-group, and then the out-group is queer people, is poly people, is kinky people, is everybody else, and they're all supporting each other. But Mm -hmm. then as soon as same-sex marriage gets to be in the in-club, now they disassociate themselves, you know, mm-hmm. obviously not all the people, but sort of as a movement, right, as a whole, there tends to be this distancing because yeah. just like that, like you're, you're ruining it for everybody. Right? It's, yeah. it's very strategic and it can be, you know, politically um, savvy and all of these things, mm-hmm. um, but, you know, it does amount to throwing somebody else under the bus to save yourself. And mm-hmm. that's that's the part that I have a problem with. And yeah. so, you know, that's why, um, you know, when I, when I write my 
ah, polyamory's not all about sex article. It, it includes this final part that says, yes, and things that are all about sex are fine. It's just that's not what it is. Um, and yeah. so it's kind of, you know, it's and it's very difficult because in some ways trying to save yourself from the misperception and from being like, you know, one of the people in the in the the dark shady corner. Um, it's very hard to to make that move without reinforcing the shadiness of the corner you're stepping away from. Yeah, yeah. certainly. Yeah, and you don't. It's get easily misinterpreted as well. For a long time now, we've been fans of AdamandEve.com for getting sex toys or lingerie or accessories, things like that. It's just a fantastic resource with a huge selection. And now, not only do we have a fantastic offer, but we also have a promo code that will work on AdamMail.com and Eve'sToys.com, which are their site specifically for LGBTQ audiences. And our code is fantastic. It's 50% off of almost any item in the store and free discrete shipping when you use our code MULTI. Yes, we love AdamandEve.com and have for years. They are our oldest and longest sponsor, and they just keep on giving great gifts to us and to our listeners. You can bring more pleasure and satisfaction into your bedroom by going to AdamandEve.com, AdamMail.com, or Eve'sToys.com and select any one item. It can be, you know, an adventurous new toy or anything you desire, something fun, something sexy, whatever sounds good. So just enter offer code MULTI at checkout and you'll get 50% off almost any item plus free shipping. That's MULTI, M-U-L-T-I at adamandeve.com, adammail.com or evestoys.com. This is an exclusive offer that is specific to this podcast and it's better than any offer that is currently available on their site. So again, use code MULTI to get you not just the 50% discount, but also the 100% free shipping. Code M-U-L-T-I. Are you familiar with the the philosophy of date your own species? I'm not I think, sure. I think Reed Mihalko came Reed up Mihalko's, with it. I think I think it's his. I thing. think he's the one who coined the you term. You mean I'm saying like poly people should not date monogamous people right. along that same those same or, lines yeah. Yeah. or whatever it is. I guess okay. I guess it could apply to other. I think things. Neil Strauss picked it up also. It's but I think I think it's the sentiment is supposed to go beyond just like monogamous or polyamorous, but but yeah, like date people who are who are like you in terms of what you want instead of trying to convert other people or or mm-hmm. something i don't i don't quite so the reason why i bring it up is because in your book you were making a criticism of you know some arguments that people have made for reinforcing um you know reinforcing the sort of ban on interracial relationships or um inter-religion relationships or whatever where it's like oh you should just be attracted to your type you know, right. you, like like attracts like kind of a thing, except of course for gender. Uh, <laughs> right, where, right, where right. But, <laughs> Which is the com- <laughs> anyway. <laughs> but it was just interesting because you you were making this this criticism of you know of that argument of uh, you know saying that you should you should only stick with people that are like you, mm-hmm. and it for some reason reminded me of Reed Mahalko's thing about dating your own species, which a lot of people in the poly community feel fairly positively about where it's like, yeah, you know what? I'm a lot happier when I'm only dating poly people or like, I won't date someone unless they're poly and they're already in at least one other relationship or something like that. And it's always rubbed me a little bit the wrong way. And when I read that section of your book, I was kind of like, Oh, I wonder if there's something there that it's like one step away. It's like just adjacent to something that could be kind of toxic. 
Yeah, good. So if you if you re- if you just replace species with race, then you can you can see immediately what the problem might be. Right. right? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So so I mean, here's a here's a thought that might help us not to have to slide over that step too easily. <laughs> um, so I mean, all of these kind of catchphrasey things um, are are only as useful as what what we can unpack from them when we start unloading what's behind the catchphrase. Um, and so you know, date your own species. If it's a prohibition on like you know. Uh, not not raping animals. I mean, great, but, but of course that's not what it means, right? Um, and, Maybe but that's if what you meant. If it's actually, Maybe. Um, well, you know, it's it's not. Uh, <laughs> if it's if it's got some, um, if there's some sort of reason why you would be happier with certain kinds of people, like say you want to have kids with someone and so you're going to be happier with someone who also wants to have kids with you um then that makes a lot of sense right (laughs) because you know massive incompatibility on a huge life question like that is a real problem that you probably want to avoid unless it can be outweighed by other things which you know anything can potentially be outweighed by other things but just as a rule of thumb um whereas the kinds of situations i was talking about where you know we we have seen at various points of, in history um, social policing to prevent dating or or relationships or marriage outside of um, a socioeconomic group, outside of your race or religion. Um, there would only be reasons to do that if there were reasons. You know what I mean? <laughs> so, like, if you will be, if you are very kind of devoutly um committed to your religious beliefs and you want to have kids and you want to raise them in that religion and being with someone else who is not of that religion is going to create like a huge obstacle for you then that is a problem maybe it's one you can overcome or address but it's still going to be a big it's still going to be a big thing that you would have to overcome or address um whereas if you're just kind of telling people you can't date that person because you're white and they're black um, then you know, then something has gone wrong because that is not a reason. <laughs> That's not a morally like viable reason not to right. not to date someone. And I mean, it's amazing to me that I that I didn't think about this um, in advance of my book coming out and some of the publicity around it. But it's been made clear to me because my partners are one of them is um, Asian Canadian, the other is um, half white and half Asian American. Um, that there is still such kind of potent and violent feeling about interracial love relationships mm. out there. Um, so, you know, some of the hate feedback that I get is is racist, is just mm-hmm. flat out racist. Um, and so that kind of, um, there is absolutely no grounds for anyone to be doing that. But there might be grounds for choosing a partner who like wants kids if you want kids, right? Yeah, <laughs> so I, so it, it all depends on what you mean. But it brings me back a little bit to the a la carte thing. That what if right. it took the a la carte also to those sorts of things? So rather than this idea that, that to me, the, the toxic part of it is that if I find someone else who's my own, quote, species, that means that somehow they're like the same as me in all the important ways. And it, mm-hmm. it kind of sells short, like the idea that we're all going to have little bits and pieces. And especially when you start looking at non-monogamy, mm-hmm. where like if I really wanted to have children, maybe I could find a co-parent 
who I don't have to be romantic with or even mm-hmm. sexual with for that matter. Mm-hmm. Right? For that, sure. That, so maybe they're not either your romantic and sexual species, but like they're your co-parenting but species. Co-parenting right. So species, then this whole yeah. idea of like the species just becomes sort of bullshit at that point, I feel like. Um, <laughs> it that, becomes yeah, too crude a tool. Let's, we can say that, right? It's, it's, just, it's a very blunt instrument for something that right. requires a lot of subtlety and sophistication to apply. And yeah. so, so and, and whenever you're doing that, you're at risk of doing the toxic thing by accident. Of course, of course. Mm-hmm. So um, we want to know, like, what do you see for the future? I mean, I know that these things ha- do happen incrementally, but then at the same time in our lifetimes, we've seen such amazing shift in attitudes towards same-sex relationships, towards interracial relationships. Obviously, as you've pointed out, like, there's still um, a ways to go, <laughs> a ways to go, a long mm-hmm. ways to go. But like, what do you see for the future specifically of the way people look at very non-traditional love? This is this is a tough one, and you know, in some ways, I love predicting the future because no one can prove I'm wrong you know, for a little while. So it's a little safer than most of the other things that I do. Um, uh, and actually, you know, so the book came out um, at the beginning of this year and was written obviously before the ascendancy of um, mm. you know um, Mr T. So um, <laughs> Mr T, no, Mr T is too cool. Yeah, no, he knew <laughs> some of the names. Yeah, we won't contaminate that name. But yes, the the giant orange. Fellow, um, mm-hmm. and so some of my some of my opinions about the future are are more in flux, I suppose, than than they used to be. Um, mm-hmm. At the time I was writing this book, I was I was looking back on you know the fact that we've moved towards, as you say, not a completed journey, but towards much greater inclusion of interracial relationships, towards much greater inclusion of same sex love. Um, and so I was thinking, you know, what's going to happen next? Because at the moment, there's a, there's a massive, massive head of steam behind the idea that you're supposed to be with one person forever. Um, that's that's um, working out for some people, but not for a very, very large number of people. Right. Um, and so I was predicting some kind of release valve for that problem. Um, and one of the release valves for that problem is more tolerance of polyamory and non-monogamy in general. Um, but... Um, when I look at that option, um, I, I see such a lot of still quite violent and, you know, vitriolic hatred. Um, and it comes from across the political spectrum yeah. in, in such a way that even people who would otherwise consider themselves to be very liberal or open minded about um, love and same-sex relationships and so on um, that I'm not actually super optimistic about that I would love to be optimistic about that but I'm not Um, and so what I actually end up predicting is that the, the way that that particular head of steam might get relieved is through greater tolerance and acceptance of um deliberately temporary but monogamous relationships um and part of my reason for predicting that is because that model is consistent with what I suspect is still one of the deeply buried um, deep core norms of how romanticness has gotten itself into our ideology. And that has to do with ownership, possession mm-hmm. of another person. Mm-hmm. And the thing about temporary monogamy is you only have to shift from a like purchase model to a rental model, but you <laughs> yeah. still accommodate the fact that you have rights now over another person. Yeah. Whereas um, the, the thing about um, non-monogamy that I think is really uh, what might be at the heart of this very kind of deep and vitriolic um, reaction to it is that it challenges that um, because there are so many models, so infinitely many possible models that, that non-monogamous relationships can take and so many of them obviously 
give rise to direct challenges to the idea that romantic love is possessing another person yeah. or, you know, putting your little wall around them and saying, that's that's my person in here and nobody else is allowed to have that person, <laughs> just me. And so um, there's something kind of, there's something I think about um, the the deeply now buried, but still, I think, really ideologically powerful idea of ownership or possession um, that makes me suspect that the way we might go is deliberately temporary monogamy instead of greater acceptance of non-monogamy. But I'm going to be trying my best to right. push us in the other direction. <laughs> well, it makes, I mean, it makes sense that that would be an easier pill to swallow. I already feel like I have so many of my friends who identify as monogamous who are already on that train of like, why can't it be like my cell phone contract? Like, right? let's do five <laughs> right. years with an option to renew. Like, I feel like that's already kind of creeping into the cultural psyche a little right. bit. It totally um, is. And, and, and especially, I mean, in some ways it totally makes sense, right? Cause, yeah. because it's, it's not unromantic to say, well, we'll check in in five years and then I can recommit to you and it'll uh-huh. be lovely. Yeah, exactly. Right. And we, I think we also, have some friends who do it every year, actually yeah. right. on, their, on their anniversary. They're like, so do you want to renew for another year? Like that's right. part of the, thing yeah and that can be really sweet and lovely too right but i think it makes sense for our generation of being a generation that went through our parents divorces like so mm-hmm. I, like i think that ours is a generation that is has a much easier time accepting like okay maybe one person for your entire life isn't the acceptable model like maybe i can accept this serial monogamy because like mm-hmm. a lot of people can really relate to serial monogamy Right, they've seen it modeled. Exactly. And it worked. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, I feel like the trick is getting over the idea that it's failed somehow, if that's the case. Mm Because I feel like while while I do think people now are more okay with the idea of serial monogamy or just kind of like, yeah, a relationship might end and I might move on, but they still, I think, see it a little bit as a failure. Yeah, that's right. Because there is still this idea that if you had done it right, it would never end. Well, there's still this idea of if that person really was the one. Right. <laughs> you know, like it's like no, I guess yeah. they weren't the one. Like that's why it ended. Like there is still yeah. that. Yeah. yeah. So I think that's that needs to get pulled apart next, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The power of the one, I think, would yeah. be Seriously. that's huge. Yeah. So so <laughs> so with the conversations that we've had after reading the book, and and like the you know what you brought up earlier in this interview is, you know, when we really start to pick apart what defines romantic love and if I might feel certain things, but in society that that isn't considered romantic love or, uh, you know, and we've seen this through history of people who would have what we would today define as as romantic love for a same-sex person, but they couldn't even see it that way. So they called it something else, right? There's there's all of this. And it kind of led us to the question, and and, um, we are allowed to use naughty language on this show it led us to the question of like is it all just bullshit like is this whole notion of romantic love just a bunch of crap and we should do away with it and and uh instead like we can have love and we can have sexual attraction and we can have commitment but why do we need this romantic love at all Great question. I, and this is this is one I grapple with in the book, you know, and it's one that um, philosophers, especially like feminist philosophers, have been have been grappling with that question for ages because they have identified particularly the ways in which like da- damaging gender roles get packed into the idea of romantic love. Yeah. And so, you know, you go back to like Simone de Beauvoir or Shulamith Firestone, like a little bit later, forties and seventies, kind of taking both sides of that question actually. So, so. 
Shunwei Firestone, um, 1970s, arguing romantic love is like a diseased form of love. It's been corrupted by its power context. And she's talking about the, the power dynamics between men and women. Um, interestingly, it's the 1970s, so she's still defining romantic love as love between men and women at that mm. stage. So you can see in many ways how these things change so quickly. Um, but so she's saying, you know, ditch it. It's it's broken. Like we need, we need better forms of love than this. And romanticism is basically a tool of patriarchal oppression. Um, go back to um, Simone de Beauvoir in The Second Sex, and she's arguing, she has just a chapter called The Woman in Love, and she argues there that, yes, it's super broken, but you can fix it. Um, mm. there's, there's nothing about, like, the, um, <laughs> the love, the romantic love per se, that, that can't be done between men and women as equals um but she is you know she is very very unhappy about the kind of romantic love between men and women that she sees around her um for for both parties actually so you know it's you know it's easy to see how she's obviously um seeing this as destructive for women she sees women as being expected to subsume their entire personalities their selves their agency right. under a man's um and that's kind of deadly she's an existentialist philosopher so right agency and autonomy are everything for her um but then she says you know it's it's actually really deadly for for the male role in that too because he's then expected to be this kind of godlike figure who could make it worth subsuming your entire giving up your entire life and identity and of course no man ever fulfills that role because that's an unreasonable expectation and so you get this depression and despair and, and worse um, and so right. you know it's like it's deadly for everyone it's completely toxic um, but there's just a very very short line at the end of the chapter where she says that when men and women can love as equals um, then love will be uh, you know a source of life and not mortal peril which is mm. what it currently is um, and so I kind of do end up with de Beauvoir on this and I do say love even romantic love is fixable um, and this is where I talk about the buffet model. Um, mm -hmm. So, so de Beauvoir doesn't tell us an awful lot about how to get there. Um, but I, this is part of why I bring in the buffet model um, as a way of saying. I mean, what we're ultimately going to be doing there is partly um, defusing the loadedness of the label romantic God, and this idea that it makes it makes <laughs> a certain kind of love special and privileged above everything else oh, right. so actually I think a word that hasn't come up yet is amato normativity yeah, yeah. and I yeah, do we, want we to get to we brought it up on our podcast too. before but yeah, yeah but you also yeah, talk about a, it in your book it, yeah, yeah. It's a it's a good word to talk about, um, and this is that idea that romantic love, um, particularly the sort of traditional dyadic monogamous etc. Romantic love is the best kind of love, and anyone whose life is lacking that is living, you know, in some sense a failed or imperfect life, um, and that idea is part of the problem um, and this you know once we've ditched that and we're prepared to say romantic love is just one of a suite of really valuable kinds of relationships and love that you can have in your life among others um, then I don't have a problem with <laughs> with romantic love anymore right as long as it's it's chosen it's freely chosen it's a label that we acknowledge has a lot more flexibility than than just the boy meets girl chases girl around with a ghetto blaster and is really annoying for five years until she eventually concedes and then somehow that's supposed to be happy um, ever after. So as long as we acknowledge that there's more than one romantic story um, and there's much more flexibility and that it's not the best kind of thing that life has to offer for everybody, although it might be for some people, mm -hmm. um, then, you know, 
I'm fine with that. Yeah. yeah. Well, we really like the buffet model because it, it reminds us a lot of relationship anarchy without having to call it anarchy, essentially. Because that, that's always been the thing that's kind of turned us off about the label is people have such a negative associations with the idea anarchy that it's a, mm-hmm. a free-for-all, that it's just crazy. Right. Like, no one knows what to expect. But this idea of that it's like a choose-your-own-adventure, that it's like a buffet, that it is like... You know, the person you co-parent with doesn't have to be your number one sexual partner, doesn't have to be your best friend. It's like a -a Build-A-Bear workshop. (laughs) Build-A-Bear. I love love. that. I wish I thought of of that. Oh, my goodness. (laughs) Um, But I guess what I wanted to know, because as I mentioned, like this has sparked so many conversations, not only in this relationship, but in my other relationships as well. um, Uh Has writing this book and has doing this research changed the way that you approach your current relationships or new relationships? I mean, it kind of has. And in in some ways... um, you know, while I was going through the process of writing and thinking, um, I was taking both of my partners with me through that process because they are both um, they are both my interlocutors. You know, they are they're with me in these thought processes and, and feeling through and thinking through all of these things. Um, and actually, both of them read the entire manuscript of the book. <laughs> and so, one of the things that changed was I felt immense gratitude to both of them Aww. for like, helping me. Um, because, and, and because my husband is is a philosopher, like I am, he was able to like spot all the silly philosophy mistakes and like help me with the arguments and that sort of thing. And my boyfriend is a writer and a poet, and he's taught creative writing for many years. So you know, me kind of like wading out into the world of writing for non academics for the first time, he was able to like go through. The, the whole manuscript line by line and say, yeah, normal people don't talk like this. <laughs> to rephrase it. This doesn't sound Aww. good. Um, and so it was just an amazing process to work through with both of them. And, you know, it, it's been, it's made me feel like the luckiest person in, in the world to have that kind of support. And um, it's definitely made me feel stronger and more connected to them. Um, recently, like since the book's come out and we've had lots more publicity going on, um, it's put a lot of pressure on all of us, like together, um, because, you know, for things like interviews uh, that are sucking up a lot of our, our time um, and in some ways are quite invasive of our um, our privacy yeah. or like are attempting to be invasive of our privacy <laughs> yeah, in some certainly. cases. Yeah. Um, it happens and, you know... Um, they're both being um, unbelievably supportive and generous in um, in um, let making this happen together with me, um, and so it's kind of there's a there's another kind of bond there now, which is this sort of oh my goodness, the mainstream yeah. is looking at us, and what do we do, and how do we mm-hmm. respond and react to that, and, the, and there is a kind of feeling of of teamwork, I think, against against all of the all of the pressures that are coming in there. That's nice. excellent. I feel like that happens with a lot of, of quote-unquote polycules um, because, because it's so easy to put media attention on it. Like, it's so easy for the local Channel 3 to find the local triad, <laughs> you know, and ask them a billion right. questions. Like, I feel like that happens a lot. I know that's definitely happened in our own lives. Like, anytime right. there's any kind of sensationalist media attention, that it really does get exhausting right. that constantly trying to, like, not only put on a good face, but also put on, like, an honest face at the same time right. and try to make sure that your story's not getting cons- misconstrued. Right, right. right. Yeah. Like and and ex- being aware of what you can and can't share is really, yes. like, you know, you yeah. have to keep updating all the time. It's like it's like polycommunication times, you know, an extra, <laughs> an extra uh-huh. few pa- orders of magnitude. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, for us, with the three of us who host this, there's we also have to battle that assumption that we're a triad. That the uh-huh. three of us are all dating each other. Uh-huh. And it's a hard thing because on the one hand, 
we want to be like, no, 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 we're not the same as all that. Look, this can look different ways. Right. Uh, it's kind of like we talked about with the sex negativity thing. Like, it's hard right, right. to not argue too far because we want to be like, well, we all were when we started the podcast. But since then, you know, now our other host, Emily, isn't dating either of us anymore, but we all still have other relationships. But then at the same time, I want to be like, but we're actually like even more in love than we were before. It just doesn't look like that kind of romantic <laughs> yeah, so, love. So it's this right. whole, just like yeah. your book explores, where it's like, now no, you're no, no, no. podcast but... co-parents. We call ourselves like an emotional triad. Thank um, you. <laughs> like there's just not like a sexual or romantic, whatever that means, mm-hmm. aspect right. to it. Um, mm-hmm. yeah. yeah. But it is that, yeah, you're you're kind of on display. And so there's this pressure to get across all the things you think are important. <laughs> Right. Yeah. It's and it's it's tough and it's exhausting and you know I kind of um, I'm I'm just I I feel like immensely grateful to to both of them for being willing to go through that with me you know because it, it was really you know this is a book that I wrote and and it's it's me sort of trying to get a bunch of ideas out there. Um, I actually personally hate being out there myself because <laughs> I'm, I'm a little introvert and I actually kind of nat- naturally kind of prefer to just hide in a room with, with my laptop and write. You know, that's mm. what I do. I write. I'm a writer. Right. Um, but there's this part of the job where, where that becomes necessary. And so, you know, I'm, yeah, working, <laughs> working to accommodate that. Uh-huh. Yeah. So we're coming to the end of our time. Um, and we have one question that we ask of all of our guests. And so we'll ask you um, if you're going to give one piece of advice to someone who's considering opening up their relationship or becoming non-monogamous or exploring polyamory, what's the one piece of advice you would give? Oh, my goodness. Other than, other than <laughs> read my book. <laughs> read my book. Uh-huh. Um, no, but I, I mean, I, actually, I, I really struggle with this one because um, I'm not an advice giver by nature. Um, and so, you know, this sounds like I'm going to weasel out of the question, but I'm going to give you an explanation of why that is, um, partly as, as a sort of partial recompense for not answering the question. Um, and the part of it is that I just I feel so um, strongly that I, I am in I'm enmeshed in a particular position and situation um, and, and view of all of these things relationships love sex whatever it is um, that the best you know the best I might be able to do is imagine some sort of um, either version of me looking from a bit a different position on things which is not what anybody else is going to be <laughs> or you know some sort of what tabula rasa <laughs> blank slate um, um, which is unimaginable because then there's nothing there um, and so you know the the only thing I get that's of close to a form of advice is resisting scripts um, mm. not and challenging them and understanding where the messaging is coming from that says you have to do this or you have to do that or you should or you'll be happier if you did this um, because like all of those messages are coming at us from every direction all the time um, and so eventually they're coming at us from our own minds as well because that's how internalization works mm-hmm. and so it's easy even with things that you know um, that we think come from ourselves that we think we want um, it's even worth challenging and questioning those because there's a decent chance that they might have been put there by something or someone else just mm-hmm. so long ago that you've forgotten how yeah. it got in there in the first place so yeah. I mean it's not it's not advice in any kind of um, that's absolutely advice classic no, sense, but that's the best I can advice, do no, no, that's fantastic <laughs> there yeah. you go beautiful um, and so then the last thing is just where can people find your book and find out more about you 
Uh, and maybe even like where we can find lists of your academic writings and stuff like that. Sure. Um, so if you go to uh, my webpage, which is www.carriejenkins.net, um, then on the various tabs there, you'll be able to find my book and um, some of the reviews. And there's also a link to um, academic work. And so you can go into and you can find those those papers that I was talking about from there as well. Um, if you want to follow me on Twitter, I'm at Carrie Jenkins on Twitter. Um, I am on Facebook as well. I'm Carrie Jenkins on Facebook, but I might not be the only one there. So it might be easier to find me via the web page first. And then there should be links through to my uh, right. social media from there. Uh, and then on your site, there's links for everything, right? For your book and for articles and all that. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. And, and the book should be, it's on Amazon. It should be also, go, go buy it from your local bookstore if you have one of those. And yeah. you should be able to get hold of it. Excellent. Well, awesome. Well, thank you so much for being here, Carrie. Um, thank you. So, guys, go out there, check out our stuff. If you want to listen to more of our podcast, um, you can find us at multiamory.com. You can email us at info at multiamory. You can find us on Twitter at multiamory. You can join our Patreon at patreon.com slash multiamory. Is yeah. that all the things? It's just multiamory everywhere. Just, just Google multiamory. You'll, you'll, you'll find, find it. it. Yeah. Yeah. You got a strong brand there. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, All right. Thank you all so much. Uh, Thank you, Carrie. And everyone, we will see you next week. See ya. All right. Bye-bye. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer and set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark.